There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. For the best experience, listen with headphones. This is a bonus episode of Season 3 of Strange Arrivals. Bonus episodes feature interviews that I conducted during my research, but that I either didn't use or used sparingly in the main episodes. They were great conversations that for one reason or another didn't make the cut, but I think they add valuable perspective to the ideas we explored this season. Dr. Diana Pasolka is professor of philosophy and religion at University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and the author of the very interesting book, American Cosmic. I interviewed her in May of 2022, just a few days before the first congressional hearing in more than 50 years to focus on military reports of UFOs. As you'll see, we have quite different takes on the UFO phenomenon, but I think she has a unique approach and I really enjoyed our conversation. So I am Diana Pasolka, and I'm a professor at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington. And um, I have been a professor there for 20 years. I have a PhD in religious studies, and my field has been in Catholic history and Catholic traditions. That's what I was trained in. And before that, um, I lived in California. I grew up in the California environment of eclectic spirituality. My mother is kind of like a Reformed Jew, and my father was Catholic. I went to Catholic schools. I was Catholic, really. I mean, you know, and I went to a Catholic high school. And then after that, I decided to attend the Jesuit School of Theology, which is attributed, it's uh, affiliated with uh, Berkeley's, UC Berkeley's, um, they have a partnership. It's like a divinity school. It's called the Graduate Theological Union. And I did my master's degree with uh, taking classes at UC Berkeley and taking classes at um, the Jesuit School of Theology and the Jewish School of Theology there. And then I went to Syracuse University to get a, a PhD. And so um, 
Yeah. And uh, one other thing about the way I've been trained is I did this in the late 90s, 90s and well, actually throughout the 90s. And this was in California where I grew up during the dot-com boom. So I was fascinated with technology and how technology informs belief and especially like beliefs about God and things like that. So I've spent a lot of time actually since I was 11 reading everything I could about religion, uh, religion, technology, technology, philosophy, you know, everything I could find about these, these things. So I didn't intend ever to study UFOs. I thought that they were very odd. I didn't want anything to do with them. Um, but I ended up doing that in 2011. And now I've been doing that ever since. So in 2011, what was kind of your entree into the, <laughs> into the UFO world? Yeah, it's kind of strange, but this is it. There were a few things. I was finishing a book on the Catholic doctrine of purgatory in which it was a, it was a huge project. I went to archives all over and I looked at anecdotes from European Catholics, North American Catholics, Canadian Catholics from, you know, for the Europeans back to, frankly, from the 1100s up to the 1800s. And what I was looking at is Catholics used to do devotions to souls in purgatory and that all kind of stopped and they don't do those anymore. And I wanted to know why. And so what I found was, um, I found the reasons for that and I wrote a book about it, but I also found that Catholics had a lot of experiences of aerial phenomena from basically a thousand years ago till now. And because they're Catholics and, you know, and they're, uh, the Catholic church takes pretty good notes, you know, they're, they're known for their record keeping. Um, and I've been to the Vatican library and secret archive and looked at a lot of the, uh, documents there. Um, I found that there were all of these aerial phenomena incidences and the frameworks for understanding those were basically religious, you know, like they've, you know, they thought these were either souls from purgatory. They'd see something like a disc in the sky and they'd call it an angel or they'd call it a demon or they'd call it a lost soul from purgatory. But they were, you know, the patterns were really the same. And at this point, it never occurred to me that these were like kind of like UFOs, but they were, they were, you know, unidentified objects that, that then were identified through Catholic frameworks. So I finished this book and I had a big log of these accounts and I didn't quite understand. I knew that I'd do something with them, but I wasn't quite sure what. And the Japanese tsunami happened. And that was just something that was so incredibly devastating and tragic and like just apocalyptic, right? Like kind of like the end of the world for this country kind of thing that I started to get, think about the apocalyptic nature of things. There was also something that happened in 2011 um, in Berkeley. This man predicted the end of the world and all of these people believed him and kind of like sold everything they had their retirement and everything for this man, you know, and, um, sadly a young person committed suicide because she believed that the end of the world was going to happen. So I was really not happy about this. My students were wanting to know, is it going to be the end of the world? And I was like, no, no, no. You know, this has been happening for a long time. Like the end of the world has been predicted so many times it hasn't happened. Right. But I was still fascinated with apocalyptic narratives, which are end of the world type narratives that I started to study those. 
And what happened was that I found that a lot of people who had these apocalyptic narratives were also what people call experiencers, people who experience UFO events. And I, I thought that was confounding. So I started to get into studying communities of people who were experiencers. And at the same time, I showed a friend of mine my log of Catholic history anecdotes, you know, of aerial phenomena. And he said, this looks like UFOs, you know? And I said, you're crazy. But, you know, it all came together for me one weekend when I attended a conference on UFOs. And I saw, I heard experiencers talk about their experiences. And I realized the patterns here are so similar to the patterns from 800 years ago, 600 years ago, 400 years ago, that this is what I have to study now. And it started there. That's interesting. When you take a look at something like that as a religious studies, trained in religious studies, so are you looking at it as there is, you know, a thing that's been happening through all these years and it's just people kind of interpret it differently based on sort of their cultural, you know, their cultural moment or their beliefs? Or is it that there's something in the human condition that sort of manifests like this. And so you get these different stories coming down through the years. Cause I'm, I'm sure you could go back further to Greek times or whatever, where they you know, they talk about gods being in the skies and, and stuff like that. Like, I understand that for religious studies, you're kind of setting aside whether, you know, the doctrine is real. You're, you're sort of, but you're studying the doctrine itself. Is that right? Am I right in that? Yeah. So the framework, that I was trained in is a framework that's actually changing and has changed. And I'm one of the people that, well, I have to say, I have to change it because it doesn't, that, pat, that method doesn't work here in this case. So the method is this, is that we're told to bracket our beliefs about whatever we're studying. Say it's like apparitions of the Virgin Mary or, you know, things like that. And we're told to study communities and social effects, but the truth of the matter is kind of something we don't actually get into. We don't say, well, these people are obviously constructed in their own, you know, they're embedded in their own religious framework, so they're not going to see this for what it actually is, which is like some kind of social economic phenomena. And that was how not necessarily, I feel like my department in, at Syracuse University was better than that. Like they understood that, that there's something more than that. And I think I stumbled upon the something more. And so I had to kind of hammer out a methodology for studying this stuff because um, frankly, when I studied Catholic history and extraordinary types of things that happened in Catholic history, I never had the kinds of things happen to me that, ha that happened to me when I first studied UFOs. I had people that were government affiliated come to me and want to talk to me about what I was studying. Literally, I had FBI agents wanting to talk with me. And that never happened to me when I was doing this other research. So obviously, things are different in this field, right? So you've got something that people are perceiving as transcendent and they're having experiences of religion with it, right? Spiritual experiences. And you're also having government agencies fascinated with it. Um, there, there will be a hearing next Tuesday about this. Uh, this is May, what, May 11th today? Yeah, so 
in a couple of days, and it's a hearing on the reality and security issues of aerial phenomena, right? And that would never happen in anybody else's, um, except for, you know, if you study like other religions that are uh, involved in, there's a lot of war, war that goes on with, you know, different religious interpretations. So it was a different kind of way for me to study. Um, and I'm still working that out, actually. I'm doing a lot of publication right now where I am helping people in my field, people in anthropology, um, people in the social sciences try to understand what's going on. And this is what I have so far. Okay. Um, how do we study something that appears to be transhistorical, right? So we're looking at something that most people would, would identify with a certain time period. And most scholars identify the rise of the UFO belief and practice and things like that um, with the Cold War between Russia and the United States, starting in the 1930s and 40s, mostly starting in the 1940s. And they say, this is obviously a Cold War kind of anxiety narrative. And at first, you know, Carl Jung, he's the, you know, he's kind of the famous intellectual um, who, you know, founded uh, different types of psychology, like Jungian psychology. And he basically said the same thing when he first started studying flying saucers and UFOs. Well, then what happened was similar to what happened to me, was that a few people from the government said to him, military specifically, well, you need to come look at some evidence. And so he did. He looked at some evidence. And after that, he changed his perspective and he said, I don't understand. He said, I think this is an archetype, but it actually has physical components to it. So he was also getting into this kind of, you know, what are we dealing with right now? So the, so what I'm working on now is this idea that it's this thing called a mytheme. So it's a mytheme. So it's kind of like a meme myth. And what this is, is it is an idea that is way more than a myth. Okay. So a myth is something that um, a mytheme is thought to be kind of the progenitor of the myth. So it, it's this something that occurs like a story that keeps occurring but the characters are changing for different periods of time. But the story remains the same, right? That there are these non-human intelligences. They interact with humans. Sometimes they give us things like Prometheus gave us technology, you know, so this looks like that kind of a mytheme. However, in this day and age, we even have to change this idea of the mytheme because mythemes except for the case of Prometheus, where we actually do have fire, right? You know, and we did have fire, but we didn't have any evidence that this uh, Greek god or Titan gave us this fire. But here in this day and age, we have some very strange things that are happening. And so I, I start out with that in, in the book, American Cosmic. I read it a couple years ago. And this, so this is what happened to me. And it's very much like a mytheme. I'm just a kind of normal idiot human going about my day, right? And then I start to study something that I assume is just a myth. And a lot of people tell me it's not. Well, one person in particular who I call Tyler in my book, he's works for a space agency. He's a, you know, space shuttle launch mission controller. And so he tries to get in touch with me through friends. And I'm thinking, I, you know, I'm not sure I want to complicate my life like this, but, um, it's what I study. So it's kind of part of my job. So finally, after about a year, I say, yeah, okay. Yeah. Let's talk. 
And he, he says this to me, he says, you think that this is completely subjective. And he goes, fair enough. But what if I told you that it's not? And what if I give you evidence that it's not? And I said, I'm open to that. And so he suggested that we go to New Mexico to this place where there's an alleged UFO crash. It's not Roswell. And I said, I'll go, not thinking that, <laughs> not understanding the circumstances of going. So apparently it's this kind of secret place under a no-fly zone. I have to wear a blindfold going to it. And so I'm like, wait a minute, I'm going to take a friend. I'm not going by myself. And so he said, hey, I had to get permission for you to come. So it's either just you or no one else. And, you know, no one else can come. And I said, no, I'm not going to go then. And so um, I suggested who it's now is known. It's Gary Nolan. Um, Gary Nolan is a professor at Stanford University, and he's a molecular biologist. And he's really a well-known professor, just kind of like a superstar. And he's also interested in UFOs, but from a different perspective than me. And so we had become, you know, pals. And I said, I'd like to take Gary Nolan. And so Tyler, I knew that Tyler would say yes, because I think that ultimately Tyler wanted to, to show us that there was actually physical evidence of anomalous debris. And so Gary went and I went, we did, you know, we blindfold, we got blindfolded and we went to this place and we had these metal detectors and, you know, so this was how American Cosmic opens up. And this was what I did, you know, and then everything happens after that, uh, these debris get analyzed, you know, a lot of things happen. I write American Cosmic. I travel to Rome to look at, you know, things that are in the Vatican secret uh, archive, even having to do with New Mexico, strangely enough, things from like the 1600s. Uh, you can say that it was a constant having my mind completely, you know, regenerated like every month or so kind of like so Tyler was right like I definitely shifted my perspective and realized that there there had to be a new way because something really interesting is happening right now my conversation with Diana Pasolka will continue after the break finding the right news podcast can feel like dating it seems promising until you start listening when you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Ch -ch 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 
ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I asked Diana Pasolka about the upcoming congressional hearing on UFOs that was going to be held in May 2022, shortly after this interview took place. I think that what they're going to be talking about is, well, first off, do I think they're going to be talking about the right things? <laughs> that's, a, <laughs> that's a good question. I think that there's something that's going on. If I didn't have a historical perspective on this and actually see these things in documents from 200 years ago, 300 years ago, like I said, I would think that this is some kind of weapon that's developed, like a stealth weapon, okay? But I do have that historical perspective. So that complicates it for me. Like, it'd be awesome just to say, put it in a box and say, ah, this is just another stealth weapon campaign kind of thing, you know? We shouldn't know about it because we're civilians and, you know, they're just doing what they do, the military. Um, but it's not that. Now, let's take this into context. Since the 1940s, and it's, you know, it's a phenomena that's been around prior to the 1940s, but it gets exacerbated in the 1940s. Why? Probably because we're, we're going all over into um, airspaces, right? We're like, we developed the Air Force. I mean, the Air Force comes along in, I believe it's 1947 too. I think it's also the CIA that comes along in, in 1947. So a lot of things happen at this time. Is that a coincidence? Um, so maybe before we weren't flying around like 200 years ago, we just saw these things from the ground and had to develop an interpretive framework for that. Well, now we're seeing them from in the sky and sometimes in space. So the question then becomes, well, this narrative has to change, right? Because we have more information. Um, we have better tools to understand this information. So we're in the very midst of reassessing what this information is. And we don't have religions to fall back on. Well, we actually do. But a lot of people are not going to fall back on those religions because we've been secular. You know, we have a very secular society that more people, well, I wouldn't say more people, but a lot of people who are not religious are actually believers in UFOs. Okay. So, you know, there's, so there's a lot of, of this stuff going on. I then asked Diana if she thought, from her perspective, the right questions would be asked during the hearing. Yeah, okay, and I was putting this in context of, you know, we've had a perception management campaign from the 19, well, let's see, when did it start? Um, it started right after the 1940s, right? And it went all, it was Project Blue Book, right? Right, so like 47 yeah. through 60. A long time. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and the people that were involved in it, we have to forgive them now, but we shouldn't forgive them if they still do this. So the people that were involved in it, like um, Hynek, Alan Hynek, he was, he was a debunker. So his job was to go debunk claims of UFOs. And n no one really bought that, right? <laughs> like the American public said, Ah, no way. Especially after the big Michigan UFO flap yeah. in the 1960s. Okay. So Hynek comes out and he even jokes and he says, okay, I actually do believe that there's something here. I don't know what it is, but we definitely need to study it is what he basically comes 
out to say. All right, so that's why we can forgive him is because he's he's you know gone back on what he did, which is intentionally creating disinformation and discrediting witnesses. Uncool stuff now, but maybe in context back then we can understand it. Okay, so I give him a pass, but I don't give people like Dodie a pass. You know, at this point we're mature enough to like deal with it, right? And so I say that, you know, so these congressional hearings, let's put these in the context of that. The attempted dupe campaign has been going on for so many years. You know, we have lots of witness reports from civilians, respectable, credible civilians, and even Air Force personnel and people like that. We have people like me who are, you know, have studied religion and know those languages of back in the day and can translate those documents. So we do have that as well, which we didn't actually think to have back in the 40s, right? Even though theologians were doing it at the time, they were saying, wow, you know, look at this kind of historical consistency. Um, So I guess my point is that let's not be afraid to open it up to better study and also to, you know, these campaigns that have been going on, this misinformation campaign. So I, I just question whether it's still happening. Because it happened back then. It's been happening for years and years. And in fact, yeah. my, my book, American Cosmic, kind of like broke it open too, even though I didn't mean to. I was <laughs> I was hanging out with people who were part of these programs, which at the time weren't acknowledged to be programs. And then in 2017 and 18, and by the way, my book was already written at this point, they came out and said, these things are real, right? And these programs are real. And I was like, wow, I did that, but I was, I didn't have any help doing it. Like, you know, I kind of was doing it on my own. So I had come, so American Cosmos is a parallel tradition of whatever kind of disclosure they're doing right now. It was like kind of a, a, frankly, like a disclosure that was not meant to be. That's American Cosmic. Yeah, it feels to me when I was reading it, like it's almost like I guess you use the word parallel that it, it seems like it, it's a little bit and, and this is not this is only in a good way uh, removed from like a lot of the stuff that you see is sort of more prominent, um, I think. Yes. And it, that's one of the reasons why I thought it was really interesting uh, is because it it doesn't engage in any of that stuff at all. It seems to be really focused on, on, you know, a, a, a few individuals who are, you know, thinking about this in, in sort of interesting ways. And then, then your own thoughts. And, and I guess you talk a lot about Jacques Vallée too. Um, and I was just trying to, you know, when I, when I was asking that question, I was trying to think of some congressman from Nebraska or something asking a question about, material reality versus spiritual reality and like how does that apply to the phenomenon that to me seems seems like a really interesting question and probably is getting more to it more towards some kind of understanding than what i assume they're going to talk about which is you know sort of more concrete things that they think they they have um around like the nimitz or or whatever the tic tac video congressional hearings aren't really set up to deal with like the kind of really interesting stuff that you have in your book. Cause you know, I, I think a lot of their constituents would be just like, what are you talking about? Definitely. 
I think that if they do talk about religion, it's going to be this way because I've had some ask me already, you know, will disclosure that extraterrestrials exist ruin, like, will they, will it completely, you know, destabilize the religious traditions of the world? That's their question. That's what they want to know. And I always answer them, no, <laughs> because, you know, contrary to what they think, um, people in religious traditions have talked about extraterrestrials for a thousand years or more. Like they've been talking about, are there tribes on Venus? You know, do people live on the moon? Like what kinds of creatures are out there? They believe that their God, whoever it is, you know, in the different religious traditions is big enough to have created all of these things. And so the people who are actually religious have a category within which they can put extraterrestrials. And I think it's more secular people and especially hardcore atheists that will like be destabilized. So if they're worried about some, some groups of people, those are the ones they should be worried about. That's interesting. Why do you think it would destabilize atheists in particular? Because people in religion, practitioners of religion, already believe in things that are non-human intelligences. They already have this category. They've lived with it their whole lives, right? They go to synagogue, they go to temple, you know, they go to wherever, you know, church. And there they talk about unseen realities, spiritual realities, things like that, okay? Um, atheists want hardcore evidence. They want like a flying saucer to land on the White House lawn. Which it almost did, by the way, in the 1950s, which right. I think is really funny. You know, it's ironic. But that kind of thing, I'm not sure they're going to get that. They're going to get some stuff, some, you know, realities like, you know, signatures and things like that, you know, radar signatures and things like that. And um, they're going to get that. They're also going to get a lot of reliable, credible witnesses who've seen things as well. And apparently now they're going to get peer-reviewed research on weird anomalous debris. So it's funny because I like I'm an atheist and I would love to see the kind of evidence that I could like take to a courtroom and like right. make a case yeah. on, you know, <laughs> and I never really thought about the idea that like having a more sort of religious background in which you're willing to, I guess, seriously consider things that don't have that kind of evidence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. would better prepare you for something like this. I've always kind of thought of it as being, you know, so much, at least in my, my understanding, I, and I certainly would not, <laughs> you know, a lot more about this than I do, but, but sort of the centrality of man to religion and that we're man is made in God's image and the fact that there are, you know, aliens with huge heads and little bodies and stuff. It's like, does that in some way sort of undermine this idea that humans are specifically God's chosen creatures or whatever. Sure. Oh, if I can actually address what you just said about religion. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, yeah. So what you just described is a very, I don't want, it's a very typical way of looking at religion, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, um, so atheists and people who are agnostic and, you know, kind of like just non-religious people think of religious people as being 
fairly superficial in what they believe to be their dogmas. Like, you know, man is created in the image of God. And by the way, in, if you go back to Genesis, like we're talking about the, the Christian and Jewish tradition, and even, you know, the Muslim tradition, it's, there are two creation stories in Genesis. And one of them is about a female and a male, but the other one is just about human creatures. So it's like non-gendered, human creatures are non-gendered. And God refers to God's self in the plural, right? So once we start to, and a lot of a lot of people who are religious, so they're not in actuality as we paint them, right? Mm -hmm. As these people who just believe that these things are the case. They have more nuanced ideas. And also I think that we have to be careful about using the Jewish Christian history and saying that religions have to look like them because look at Buddhism, you know, I mean, many denominations of Buddhism, they might have things called bodhisattvas that look like saints or gods or something, but there is no God. There's no idea of God in Buddhism. It's a, it's kind of a, I wouldn't call it an atheistic religion, but many people do. Is atheistic. So there, so there are different forms of religion. Even in um, Hinduism, you have all kinds of different things there other than what we, I even hesitate to call those gods and goddesses. I call them what Hindus call them, devis and devas, you know, and things like that. They're just not what Westerners ascribe to typical ideas of religion. That's interesting. What haven't we talked about that you think is really important for myself or, or, or people who listen to kind of understand? That's a good question. So I think one of the things that I was most astonished by in my work, and I lay it all out there, which is kind of funny because I don't think it gets read. <laughs> this is it. It's that what we see in the media about the phenomena is not what this phenomena is like in reality. Okay. So if you're a field researcher and you go and you, you go to people who've had these experiences or see these experiences and you go hang out and watch like the, you know, and talk to people where there have been multiple witnesses and things like that. Um, it gets, I mean, there, I have specific examples of how this gets changed and I'll sh share with you one example. This is called, um, you know MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network? Oh, yeah. Yep. And Okay. So this is an organization that's not federal. It's privately funded. And it's like a database of where you can go and if you see a UFO or something like that or, you know, have a UFO event or experience, you can tell them what, you know, you, there's a place where you can input your information. And if they find it interesting, they're going to come out there with field researchers and they're going to talk to you about it and get information and data, take pictures. If there are any like sample weird things, they're going to take those too. And they're going to do an analysis of that, right? Well, a lot of people that I know, and I, I put two, I put one in my book, maybe I put two in my book, but at least I put one in my book where it's uh, Ray Hernandez's account, where he basically input his experience into a MUFON database. And I'm not saying all MUFON people know this or are know that they're party to this, but they are. What happens is that that experience goes into the database and MUFON had a contract with Hangar One, which is the media production you know, company. And they take those experiences 
and they completely change them. And we're talking about what was a good experience becomes a really scary experience that people then consume in the media. Okay. So I want to put some information out there that people can, what do you call it? Connect the dots. Okay. After project blue book, Alan Hynek leaves project blue book and he founds KUFOS, right? Uh, the center for the study of UFOs, very much like MUFON, kind of the same template. And what MUFON is, in my interpretation, and excuse me, MUFON, and I know not all MUFON people are like are doing this. Like the, I know lots of good field researchers, um, but these, you know, this is a database that's taking all of this information, and then we have to, you know, why is it being changed and then repackaged for the public consumption? I want to know, and I want to know. It looks like misinformation. Are they doing it just for money? I don't think so. Because I think that a really happy UFO experience event would also bring, you know, people would still be interested in watching that. So the questions I think we, these are the kinds of questions that they should be asking at the congressional hearing. They won't be asking these questions. That's why we have researchers who are now, by the way, because of the recent acknowledgement by the government in June that UFOs were, you know, small percentage were unknown. Do you know how many researchers now are, are like what I'm talking about is people like me, only like younger, you know, 20 years younger and are now emboldened to do this research. And they're all coming out with their own research and their own, you know, ways of looking into this and things are going to change. Is there funding now available for that? There is funding available for that. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's, first off, you have to understand that people who are like assistant professors they're, they want to get published and they have to get published in order to stay professors, basically. So they're going through and there's a, what's called a peer review process where other academics who they don't know are looking at their work and assessing whether or not it's well done enough to be published. And that's what's happening right now to a lot of people like me and Gary Nolan and people that kind of did this without any kind of support. You know, we did it because that's where our data took us. And, you know, I was scoffed a lot, frankly, um, in, you know, before anything came out before 2017, but I was already a full professor and chair of my department. So I, I wasn't worried about being scoffed at, but I didn't enjoy it, you know, but so those young people weren't inclined to do this kind of research because they wouldn't get tenure. They would not keep their jobs and things like that. And things have changed now. So, so I think the whole landscape of research is going to change. So maybe in 10 years at the congressional hearings, we'll be hearing from academics about it. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Rima El Kayali, Jesse Funk, and Noemi Griffin, with executive producers Alexander Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey, and supervising producer Josh Thane. Learn more about the show at grimandmild.com slash strangearrivals, and find more podcasts from iHeartRadio by visiting the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.